From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. On a trip to Amsterdam, Boulder author Buzzy Jackson visited the Museum of Dutch Resistance, where she saw a small display about a young female Nazi killer. And all it said was she became the most wanted woman in the Netherlands, according to Hitler, during the war. And I thought... Well, I, how come I've never heard of this woman? The real-life story of Hani Schaft inspired Jackson to write a work of historical fiction called To Die Beautiful, about how Dutch citizens fought back in ways big and small. The Netherlands had essentially no military. It was entirely destroyed in a blitzkrieg attack in 1940 by the Germans. So if anybody was going to come to the self-defense of this country, it was going to be average citizens. The book resonates today in many ways. Thank you to our dedicated members and to everyone who donated during the recent fund drive. Because of you, CPR continues to grow, delivering news and music programs we can all rely on. It's incredibly powerful that tens of thousands of listeners across the state voluntarily make room in their budgets to support Colorado Public Radio. Thank you for your generosity, and thank you for being a part of the CPR membership community. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. There's a name you may not recognize but ought to know. Hani Schaft was a Nazi killer, a member of the Dutch resistance in World War II. As Hitler's forces rounded up Jews across Holland, Schaft, a Protestant, bombed Nazi assets and assassinated powerful collaborators. This was a deviation from her path before the war as a law student who embraced the teachings of Gandhi and hoped to work for the League of Nations. Schaft's life has inspired a new novel by Boulder author Buzzy Jackson. It's called To Die Beautiful. And let's start with some important grounding. From the audiobook, here's a snippet of the opening historical note. Anne Frank is the most famous victim of the Dutch Holocaust. Her story resisting, hiding, betrayal, murder, was not unusual. More Jews were killed in the Netherlands than in any other Nazi-occupied European country. An estimated 75%, approximately 102,000 individuals, did not survive the war. To explain these numbers, survivors and historians have argued that the flat, densely populated geography of the Netherlands made it a difficult place in which to hide. There were no vast forests or mountain ranges into which one might disappear. Another factor in the Dutch experience might have been the relatively slow implementation of anti-Jewish measures by the Nazis in the Netherlands, which delayed the development of the resistance movement. Yet the Netherlands was also the site of the remarkable February strike of 1941, the first and only mass protest by non-Jews against anti-Semitic Nazi policies in Europe. Organized by the Dutch Communist Party, Approximately 300,000 Dutch citizens mounted a huge nationwide general strike and demonstrations for three days, until it was violently put down by the Nazi occupiers, and dozens of the movement's organizers were killed. As the war went on, Dutch citizens engaged in forms of passive resistance, such as displaying the national color, orange, reading contraband resistance newspapers, and listening to Radio Aranya the London-based radio programs of the exiled Dutch government. 
Among the general population of the Netherlands, approximately 5% are estimated to have openly collaborated with the Nazis. It is estimated that another 5% of the Dutch population participated in active resistance by sheltering Jews, spying on the Germans for the Allies, or taking up arms in direct confrontation with the Nazi occupiers. Of these armed resistors, only a few were women. That is from the historical note at the start of To Die Beautiful by Boulder author Buzzy Jackson. We spoke in front of an audience at the Tattered Cover Bookstore on Colfax in Denver. How did you learn about this real-life figure, Hani Schaft? I first learned about her seven years ago when, uh, in the winter of 2016, I went to Amsterdam for Christmas break and happened to go to the Museum of the Resistance in Amsterdam and saw a small little display about this uh, college-aged young woman. All that was in the display was a pistol, a pair of eyeglasses, and a little photograph of two girls, one dressed as a boy and one dressed as a young woman. And the one dressed as a woman was Hani Schaft, and that was her gun and her glasses. And all it said was she became the most wanted woman in the Netherlands, according to Hitler, during the war. And I thought, well... I, how come I've never heard of this woman? And so my first thought was, I'll go to the bookstore and get a biography of her and read it. Um, to my surprise, there was no biography of Hani Schaft, at least not in English. And there, were, there had been um, one or two in Dutch, but not in the 21st century, not for a long time. So I was between writing projects, and I thought, maybe I should write her biography, which was my first thought, to write this as a nonfiction book. And who was the other figure in the photo, a a woman dressed as a man? Yeah, that turned out to be a young woman named Truce Overstegen, who, as I learned, was also in the resistance. She was a member of Hani's resistance cell, and she, this was one of the kind of subterfuges they would do to dress up Hani as kind of an alluring femme fatale type, and Truce would go with her, sort of as her date, so to speak, and then uh, Hani would lure a Nazi officer into a dark alley and shoot him point blank. And then Truce would help her hide the body and they'd run off and escape. Oh, it seems strange to me that a figure as important as Hani Schaft, as you said, uh, so wanted by Adolf Hitler, would have this like mini display with a single firearm. Yeah, I, th- I think that her reputation is growing bit by bit in recent years, but it was essentially suppressed after the war because, basically because of the Cold War. The Communist Party organized a lot of the anti-fascist resistance during World War II, all over Europe, but certainly in the Netherlands. And since Hani was a member of a nominally communist cell, not that she was particularly ideological in any way, after the war, of course, Russia, who had been our ally during the war, suddenly became our enemy. And the idea of a war hero who was also a communist Mm began to seem problematic for the Dutch government. And so even though thousands of people really loved her after the war, her heroic uh, acts were kind of suppressed. And that didn't really change until after the Berlin Wall came down, really, and her reputation started to grow again. 
The war really did change her path. I mean, transformed her from pacifist attorney into Nazi hunter. Yeah. Talk about that evolution. Yeah, growing up, she was um, a very normal young Dutch student. She was, if anything, known for just being very shy, kind of a bookworm, sat in the back of the class. And her goal in life was to be a lawyer, what we would now call a human rights lawyer. She was always interested in social justice uh, and those issues. As you said, Gandhi was somebody she was really fond of. So her goal was to become a human rights lawyer for the League of Nations. Unfortunately for her and for everyone, the League of Nations collapsed on the eve of World War II because its entire mission was to prevent war. That didn't work, and mm. they faded. And so then her her entire career goal was kind of out the window, but she decided to go to law school anyway and just kind of pursue that path and see where it took her. But of course, the war interrupted the best laid plans. Indeed. Her hair color comes <laughs> up over and over again. Yeah. And in fact, I think the book is titled something in reference to her hair abroad, like the British version is called The Girl with the Red Hair, maybe? That's right, yeah. You know, it's it's not often that I comment on a character's looks, yeah. certainly not a female character's looks, but you opened the door by citing her red hair throughout. Mm-hmm. Why does it stand out? Well, for one thing, it just did stand out uh-huh. in the yeah. Netherlands. I realized the question had the answer in it. But. No, but, you know, I do think it's significant. Um, you know, the classic Dutch look is blonde hair, blue-eyed, and everyone in her family looked like that. Her sister did, except Hani. She came into the world with red hair, which is still pretty unusual in the Netherlands. So I think that sort of separated her, distinguished her a little bit as a child, and she was teased for her hair color as a child. But the girl with the red hair as a phrase comes from Adolf Hitler, who had heard rumors by the, you know, about 1943 of this young woman with red hair who was assassinating Nazis in the Netherlands. And he sent word back to the Netherlands to find this woman and capture her. And they didn't know her name, so they just called her the girl with the red hair. The girl with the red hair. Mm There is a watershed in this book, the point at which Hani Schaft realizes that she's willing to kill for the cause. How was it to write about that transformation from pacifist law student, (laughs) as we've said, to Nazi hunter? You know, she started in her activism the same way pretty much everyone does when they start in any kind of activism, which is just doing small things. Like she volunteered for the Red Cross to help put together their medical supplies for people in need, that kind of thing. Um, You know, tearing down propaganda posters where she saw them, that kind of thing as well. It wasn't until um, about halfway through 1943 that the Nazis occupying the Netherlands required every student there to sign a loyalty pledge to the Nazi party. And of course she was in law school. Yeah, and she was in school. 85% of Dutch students refused to sign the pledge, which is a pretty big number. Uh, And they were all kicked out of school immediately. So her dream had already been crushed once by the dissolution of the League of Nations. Now she was kicked out of law school. And... Most importantly, during her time in law school, she had become best friends with two girls who were Jewish. And 
I think over the course of those first couple years in school, her experience of being friends with these girls went from, you know, we're all just the same, we're all just young students in college, to seeing her friends get barred from attending school, having to face curfews, their own families, livelihoods taken away. And it was so shocking to her that I think by the time she got kicked out of school, it sort of occurred to her this was the first time one of these policies had actually affected her versus what had already been happening to her friends. At that point, she convinced her parents to hide her friends in their house, much like Anne Frank was hidden you know, in a, in a factory in her case. And I think she just decided to go for broke um, because everything had been taken away from her mm-hmm. in terms of her ambitions. And to some extent, I think it was partially just luck that the resistance cell she did end up getting into was an armed resistance cell. And there were already these two young women, one of whom I just mentioned, Truce of Restegan, and her her sister, Freddie, who are around Hani's age, which is about, at this point, 20 years old. Freddie joined the resistance when she was 14. Um, 14? Yeah. With her parents' permission, <laughs> with her mother's permission. And so these two girls were already using guns. And in addition to just shooting shooting people, they did a lot of dangerous things like transporting weapons, as you said, placing bombs, you know, in certain key targets. And by that point in the war, I think it was obvious to everybody who was paying attention that there was no military force that was going to help them. They were mm. completely cut off. There was nothing left to lose. Exactly. And I, the way I think of it, and I think the way that they thought of it and described themselves was as soldiers. The Netherlands had essentially no military. It was entirely destroyed in a blitzkrieg attack in 1940 by the Germans. So if anybody was going to come to the self-defense of this country, it was going to be average citizens. And that was what she did. I want to make sure that we talk about hunger. Yeah. In World War II in the Netherlands, there's just not enough food to go around. And those pangs infuse your novel. I remember the line from one of your characters, Hunger sweetens even raw beans. <laughs> um, Buzzy, how do you write convincingly about hunger? You know, I didn't realize when I started doing the research for the book that that would be such a big part of it. But once you start reading about the experience of the Netherlands in World War II, over and over again, this phrase comes up, the hunger winter. And that was essentially the winter of 1944 into 1945. As an Audrey Hepburn fan, this is a bit of history I know, because she shared often when she came to volunteer for UNICEF Mm -hmm. that she knew what hunger was like. She knew what malnutrition was like because of her survival in Holland during the war. Yeah, she was a Dutch girl, you know, stuck in that same situation. And there are a lot of memoirs and really great books of history written about the hunger winter. And when you read them, you start to understand that, you know, it's not just that, sure, life was tough all over for people in war, but this was a really a manufactured famine by Nazi Germany. There were, you know, Red Cross shipments of food coming in that were just immediately confiscated by the Germans, you know, in violation of international law. It's interesting. It's a slow killing, really. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think the Germans, from their point of view, saw it as, listen, the more um, starving and sort of exhausted these people are, the less they'll be able to fight back. 
something like 20,000 people died during that hunger winter just of malnutrition in the Netherlands, which is a pretty shocking number. And so you read a lot of accounts, mm-hmm. and I'm guessing that really helped add the color yeah. to this. You know, the more I read about it, I tried to put myself in so many different situations that, of course, I've never experienced, imagining what it would be like to just subsist on tulip bulb soup. That was something people ate. Yeah, you can eat it. It doesn't contain much nutrition, but I guess it contains a little bit and some fiber. Um, Imagining that. And just imagining things, too, like, you know, you're starving. There's no electricity anymore. People are burning anything they can for uh, warmth in their homes and to cook food. The other thing, too, is that these people had no idea how long this was going to last. Yes. You know? This is the sense I had reading the book. As the reader, I know World War II ends. I know when it ends. But you have to write these characters as if they, well, certainly don't know that the war will end. And if it will, who will prevail? Exactly. You have to kind of put on a bit of a blindfold around Mm -hmm. some of your brain cells as you're writing this book. Yeah, and you can see how, you know, people make decisions in horrible situations like that based on, you know, what they project into the future. Like people who are having to hide in a closet for four years might think, what if I have to do this for 12 years? You know, they don't know how long it's going to go on. And that those kinds of thought processes really influence the kind of decisions that you end up making. Fundamentally, this is a novel. Well, and, and why a novel? I mean, you could have written this century's biography mm. of Hani Shaft, mm. but you didn't. I initially thought I would write a biography because my previous books are all nonfiction. Um, And for the first, I would say, year that I was working on it, that was my intention. But the more research I did, the more I realized how little material still existed from Hani herself. Um, Oh, so her own voice. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. that that makes it tough. It makes it tough. I mean, you know, if you think about uh, Anne Frank... The entire reason we know about Anne Frank and her story is because of her incredible diary that she left behind. And not only does it tell us the facts about what happened, but it really gives you a sense of Anne Frank's voice, you know, her personality. In Hani's case, there's some letters that she wrote to her friends and family. Um, There's high school essays she wrote, but there's no diaries and no interviews. And it was actually um, uh, my literary agent who first suggested, maybe you should try it as a novel. I was pretty intimidated by that idea because I had never published a novel, although I have written three uh, what I would call practice novels <laughs> that will never see the light of day. <laughs> but they did writing those novels did teach me a lot about how to do it. You're a self-taught novelist. <laughs> well, I think all writers are pretty much self-taught. Uh-huh. I mean, that's my own feeling, but yeah. Um, and you know, if you work on it, you do get better, which is a, a nice thing. I was, but I was also intimidated by the idea of telling the story of tr- real people, if fictionalizing that, just out of respect for you know what they actually went through. But then I looked around to see if there were any models for this, and I fortunately remembered a book probably most people here have heard of, Schindler's List, yes, which is a novel. 
I think many of us think of it as a nonfiction book. That's right. But it's a novel, and there's a really beautiful foreword, a sort of author's note in the beginning of that book, that Thomas Kennelly, the author, wrote at the time, explaining why he wrote it as a novel. And it was essentially saying the same thing. Um, he had done all this research, just as he would for a, writing a you know straightforward history. But to really bring the story alive, he felt that he needed to... Um, fictionalize it slightly, if only to have some dialogue in the book, you know? Mm. I mean, that's really where it comes down to, is hearing people talk to each other. You have to imagine that on some level. Well, if I recall, Schindler was not Jewish, right? That's right. Yeah, and and you've written a book about a Protestant. That's right, yeah. I mean, Hani Schaft is not a Jewish figure. Right. She's part of the resistance. She has Jewish friends right. who she's very close to. As yeah. you said, her family helped shelter them in nearby Harlem. Mm -hmm. But did you have concerns about writing a Holocaust story that wasn't centered on a Jewish character? You know, I didn't really, because I felt like her story is so, it's so incredible that it's one of those things you couldn't really believe if it was just a novel. And also I felt like her experience with uh, Sonia and Feline, her two Jewish friends, I mean, they were the people who really I think, raised her consciousness about what was going on. And, you know, there's so many books written about World War II and written about the Holocaust. I feel like there's a million different facets to this story. Mm -hmm. And the, the courage and the um, agency and action of her Jewish friends is a big part of the book as well. You know, they... Um, she didn't force them to go into hiding. That was something they had to discuss with their families. Not everybody in their family agreed to do the same thing, you know, and, and different members of their families met different fates. So, you know, in a way, I think it's a beautiful story of how far people will go, not just to defend their own family, but other people they know, their friends, uh, people of different religions, you know, that kind of thing. And you've, you've somehow tapped into the zeitgeist because the Dutch experience during World War II, again, which is so comparatively deadly, yeah, uh, it seems to be getting a lot of attention right now. Your book, the British director Steve McQueen is working on a film about Amsterdam called Occupied City. Mm -hmm. Disney is making a series about the woman who sheltered Anne Frank. Yeah. Any guesses as to why this story is being told now? It's a good question. I Partly I think it is a corner of World War II history that hasn't been explored as much, and so... I'm embarrassed by my own ignorance of it, actually. Don't be embarrassed. No, <laughs> I didn't know anything either. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I'm not really sure why it's all coming now, but I will say that even in the case of the people I write about in this book, you know, many of them survived until just a few years ago. And when those obituaries of those people, like, for example, Truce Overstegen, who I mentioned earlier, she died just, I think, three years ago. And when her obituary came out, it went around the world, and suddenly a lot of people started hearing these stories oh. of what these incredible people did, you know, back during the war. And like many soldiers who come back from war, they didn't always talk about it during their lifetime. You know, it was too traumatic. And so I think it was only when these obituaries started coming out that the story started getting told. A detail stood out to me mm. from your book that when the Nazis invaded Holland, they changed the time zone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
They it change, is the creepiest yeah. detail. It's yeah, it's really. They I, they, they tried gross. to control the time. Yeah, I think they did that. As far as I know, in every country they occupied that was not already on Berlin, Berlin time. time. And that's a, there's a scene in the book where Hani sees them changing the hands of the clock in the big square in central Amsterdam. I found it so chilling because it's such a sort of big brother moment of controlling every aspect of life, right? It's as if they would have controlled the weather if they could, you yeah. know? But the time, it's a big one, you know? And, and I think for a lot of Dutch people at the time, they refused to adjust their watches and clocks, you know, out of a, that's also a form of resistance. Yes. But if you wanted to catch the trains, of course, you had to, <laughs> you had to know what time it was. One of your characters, Jan, says sabotage is a huge part of resistance. Yeah. What sorts of acts did Hani and her fellow resistance members pull off? Yeah. They did a lot of things. I mean, as, as I mentioned, they would transport a lot of weapons. And when I say transport, that is by bicycle, in their bicycle baskets. Uh, almost everything that happens in this book, from her point of view, including the drive-by shootings, are ride-by bicycle shootings. Um, it's about and, as Dutch as you get. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, not too far into the war, all the rubber was requisitioned by the Germans, so most of their bike tires were made out of wood, which... Hard to imagine riding a wooden-wheeled bike around the Netherlands, but they did. It's like a bike with clogs. Yeah, exactly. But they did other things, like um, they placed bombs in strategic points like factories where they were building U-boats. Train um, lines, I think. Train, Yep, train lines. They placed bombs in a uh, popular movie theater in Harlem that was basically had just been turned into a propaganda, Nazi propaganda movie theater. And so the only people really attending those shows were Germans. So they didn't feel too bad about bombing that. And Hani did things like, uh, she spoke fluent German before the war. So that allowed her to sneak into certain military bases using a fake ID, claiming she was Swiss, which they were neutral in the war. Claiming she was a Swiss journalist there to sort of document what was going on in the war and she actually created a map hand drew a map that eventually made its way to the royal air force in england who uh, later bombed that v2 rocket facility so significant really significant extremely dangerous operations all of these things i've just mentioned are punishable by death hmm. so you know every single one of these things you're taking your life in your hands I mentioned this character, Jan, yeah. uh, a love interest Yes. in this novel. Yes. I is this a love story? I think so in certain ways, yeah. Um, Jan Bonacomp, he was a dashing, blonde-haired, handsome union organizer. A real-life figure as well, like Hani. Absolutely, yeah, real person. And did you, is it true that they were entangled? Yes, yeah. Everybody in there, they were both in the same resistance cell, they fell in love, and everybody knew it. And everybody, I think, was kind of happy for them that there was at least a little bit of joy in their lives in the midst of this incredible hardship that they suffered through. So I do think that, I do think her relationship with Jan, uh, it was her first ever romance, you know? So I'm sure it was extremely intense just because of the intensity of 
everything that was going on, mm. you know? I mean, I think back to my first loves and the idea of setting that in a war zone. I know. It's almost unimaginable. Yeah, yeah. The book is peppered with what I'll call maxims, mm -hmm. and I'll share a few. Those who want good will not be prevented from accomplishing it. It's attributed to the Dutch royal family in exile. And then, de Kogel is der Kirk? Yeah, I mean, I won't, I can't pronounce it. Okay, but I it, don't it, speak Dutch. It translates to the bullets gone through the church. Yeah. A sort of tipping point. Yeah, like if you get to the point where soldiers are actually shooting into churches. You're there. It's yeah. game on. Yeah. Another one, safety is a form of false consciousness. Yeah. And where despair ends, tactics begin. Mm -hmm. Do you collect sayings <laughs> like this? I mean, I tried to, definitely tried to collect as many, you know, some of those are just direct quotes from, yeah. from the real people involved, including uh, the mother of the two girls who were in the resistance cell with Hani, because their, their mother was actually a very um, experienced activist. And she was an important touch point for them because she had been an activist in, on behalf of refugees since the First World War. And so she really had the experience of how burnt out you can get doing this work, doing this incredibly difficult and dangerous work. And so she had a lot of little sayings like that that kind of mm. helped uh, restore everybody's sort of energy in what they were doing, reminding them why they were doing it. It's like daily affirmations yeah. for war. Yeah, it is. It is. I, I think it's, you know, daily affirmations for, you know, when you're in the trenches, essentially. And the where despair ends, tactics begin. I think that one was really powerful to me because it's really about when you get to a point where you've sacrificed so much, you don't know if you can handle it emotionally anymore. And that's when you have to kind of put those emotions away and just focus on the work. Just keep doing it. That's where the tactics begin. Okay, I'm going to offer a spoiler alert, which I realize is a strange turn of phrase for a real-life historical figure. But I'll give folks in the room and on the radio a moment to cover their ears or turn the dial. So the Nazis eventually apprehend Honeyshaft. Yes. She is imprisoned, tortured for information, yeah. and they eventually execute her. Yeah. I still have a pit in my stomach because her death comes so close to the end of the war. Yeah. Like, Buzzy, the end was in sight. I know. And this magnificent figure I know. is gunned down. Yeah, I know. It's heartbreaking. I mean, when I first learned that, I was stunned and it just seems so incredibly poignant and unfair. I mean, the, actually the same thing happened to Anne Frank. She was killed in a concentration camp just a few weeks before the end of the war, as was Hani Schaft. Um, and I should say, by this point in the war, by the spring of 1945, most people did know that Germany was losing, the end was coming. News is coming from Omaha Beach. Exactly. And the advancing front of the, exactly. of the Western yeah. Allied powers. Yeah. So most people, I wouldn't say people were celebrating in the streets, but there was a sense that this, that this was going to come to an end. And, but the, um, of course, that also, that cuts both ways, right? Yeah. It's also that the Nazis know yeah, that. And course. they're getting messy mm -hmm. and desperate, desperate yeah. and 
even more barbaric. Yeah, I mean, toward, you know, in the sort of approach to the end of the war, um, negotiations started with Germany, um, with the Allies and the Axis powers of how they were going to end this thing in Europe. One of them was, look, any prisoners of war that you currently have, you can't do anything to them after this point. And this is like in... You know, February, March of 1945. Like, listen, we know which direction this is going. You can just hold these people in jail and let them out at the end. The Germans did not do that uh, in the Netherlands and in, as we know, most of Europe, and continued to kill prisoners and torture them till the very, very end. Even in the context of the horrible yes. war, it was still pretty shocking, I think, to people. Is it true that she's shot from behind? Yeah, she was... Um, Such cowardice. Yeah, it was really terrible. They basically, they threatened to execute her by firing squad um, a few times before they actually did it, just to sort of psychologically terrorize her when she was in prison. And then one day um, told her it was time to leave the prison, was not told why. She was thrown into a van, and there were three Germans in the front, she was alone in the van until they stopped, picked up one more guy, and threw a shovel into the back of the van with her. Not a good sign. Drove her out to the dunes by the North Sea. And she knew, and kind of everybody in the resistance knew, that that was where they took resistance fighters to kill them. The idea was they could bury them anonymously in the sand, in these giant sand dunes that are still out there. She got out of the car, uh, they marched her up this sand dune, and before she could, you know, do anything, one of them just shot at her. It grazed her head, her head started bleeding, she fell to the ground, and then she got up, turned back to these four Nazis who were armed, and said, I can shoot better than you. And then they killed her. <laughs> So it was the kind of thing I thought, this can't possibly be true, that somebody could be this incredibly courageous and amazing in the face of death. But in fact, her last words were reported by the Germans who killed her. Oh. They testified later, um, some of them in the Nuremberg trials, as to you know the events surrounding her death. Um, and that's where we get that information from. So she was really a incredible fighter until the very end. We are seeing rising anti-Semitism right here in Colorado, across yeah. the country. Do you feel an obligation as an author today to remind people that Nazis are bad? <laughs> yeah, I do. Uh, Nazis are terrible. Nazis are the worst. And it's one of those things that, you know, when I started writing the book in 2016, you know, Brexit, the Brexit vote had just happened, the Trump presidency had just begun, and I remember thinking, well, all of these themes are very present right now. Um, I wonder if my book will be out of date by the time it comes out, uh, and seven years later, here we are. Sadly, it's not out of date, and all of those things are incredibly relevant now. So, yeah, I do think it's important to for people to understand how these things happen, how these movements grow, and uh, how important it is to stand up to that kind of you know, bigotry, racism, all of that. Before we take audience questions, 
Let's wrap up with one more maxim, a refrain throughout the book, if I recall correctly. Stay human. Yeah. What does it mean? How, how does it apply to our lives today? Well, this was another one that the girls in the book, I mean, I call them girls. They're teenagers, you yeah. know, for the most part. This was something they said to each other to remind each other that even in the midst of all of this brutality, it was it was still their responsibility to stay human in the face of it. They, this also meant that they didn't take certain jobs. For example, Hani Shaft had the opportunity, uh, was offered the job of kidnapping the children of the commissar in charge of the Netherlands at that time. And she refused. She said, we don't, we don't hurt children. We don't, we don't do that. That's what Nazis do. She held on to her humanity. Yeah. And she that was stayed part of human. Her. Exactly. And I think it also just means it's a reminder that uh, regardless of your ethnicity, religion, any of that stuff, we're all human. And that common humanity is the thing we all have to reach for to uh, get us through those most trying times. Hi, I'm Edie Chang from Boulder, Colorado. Bezzy, you said you started this book in 2016, so you've been living with this character. In fact, I haven't read it yet. I'm looking forward to it. But um, how has being with this character or these characters made an impact on you? Yeah, it's made a huge impact. I mean, first of all, I've, it's never taken me seven years to write a book. This is the longest I've ever spent on a book. As you know, we all experienced some pretty intense stuff in the last seven years um, from various political issues to the global pandemic. Um, I went through some tough times in the sense that sometimes the material was so dark and sad that I felt I needed to take a break from it from time to time. But also to a certain extent, I think I just got desensitized a little bit to it so just so I could write the book, I did have moments writing some of the really, really intense scenes. I remember writing one of those scenes and I was having a really hard time just keeping going with the material because it was making me sad. And I actually took my phone and I put on the Pixar movie Toy Story on mute and I just set it up next to my computer, just playing on the side to remind me that life is beautiful and there's like smiling children in the world and there's bright colors and just had it playing there silently while I wrote this horrible thing to kind of keep my spirits up. But I think the other way it changed me is, you know, right around the time when I started really getting into the research uh, about the work that Hani was doing, you know, one of the things I noticed doing the research and that I learned is that most of these activists uh, at that time started out uh, helping refugees. And it really started to dawn on me that a refugee crisis anywhere in the world is a sort of a canary in the coal mine kind of sign, I think, that uh, authoritarianism, fascism, terrible things are happening somewhere and they're getting closer to us and they're driving people to our shores and that we should help those refugees because they're coming here because they share our values. That was right around the time when families were being locked up in cages on the Mexican border. And I think we all remember the children being separated from their parents. And I honestly, I was getting so disgusted with myself doing nothing that, that I started to get involved with being more of an activist on behalf of refugees uh, to this country. 
and did some protesting down on the border, but also got involved with a wonderful organization here in Denver called Casa de Paz, which are a great organization that helps um, refugees who are stuck in the ICE detention center in Denver. Um, it helps sort of get them out of there and connect them with their families and friends in the United States. Though, though they may all not be refugees. Then, yeah, they may I should have say. varying statuses. Yeah, yes. varying statuses. Um, anybody coming to this country who is then being essentially locked up while they await due process. And um, I felt like I was such a hypocrite working on this book if I didn't do a few things, at least myself, you know? So, so I've tried to stay involved with stuff like that and just even other kind of smaller volunteer acts in our community. But... That also was something I learned was that just the small things that you can do make a huge difference because not everybody in the Netherlands was like Hani and shot Nazis or transported bombs, but her work really depended on the everyday tiny actions of other people doing more passive forms of resistance such as you might look down and realize your neighbor suddenly has a new person living in their house that person might be Jewish. Just knowing that and not reporting that is a punishable by death offense or you know, was at that time. And that neighbor might decide, I'm just not going to say anything. I'm just not going to report it. That's an act of resistance that none of the Jews who survived would have ever made it without people doing stuff like that. So I think it changed the way I look at you know, how we can help others in our community. Hi, I'm Erin Lichtenwalter. I'm in Denver. And my, I'm listening to the book. Oh, good, good. And so I have two questions. One is, how did you decide to write in first person? Mm. And then second, how much involvement do you have in who narrates the audiobook? Because first of all, the book is incredible. Thank and you. And second of all, listening to it, I believe she's Hani. Oh, good. And the accents mm. are just incredible. Oh, I'm so glad to hear you Thank say you. that. Why don't we dip into the audiobook a little first? Okay, sure. Why are you hiding back here, Sonia? Feline asked her friend. Trying to escape your suitors? Something like that, Sonia said. I thought members of the AVSV were supposed to look out for each other, but this one won't give me a light. She winked at me. My face flamed with embarrassment. I was 20. I should have learned how to smoke by now. Feline smiled at me. I'm Feline. What's your name? Hani, I said, shocking myself. Well, I love audiobooks myself. I listen to a lot of them. And as most people who like audiobooks know, the narrator is incredibly important, right? It's, I've definitely stopped listening to books where I just was bugged by the person's voice. I was really excited when I heard that I was going to have the opportunity to audition a few different voice actors to do the book. I wasn't sure I'd have that opportunity. And so what I asked for when they were selecting actors to do it is, I said, listen, I just want somebody who can say all of the Dutch words and all the German words correctly. Um, I mean, better than I can, because I'm not an expert in that. And the one we actually ultimately went with, the wonderful Saskia Marleveld, it grew up in the Netherlands. So she really knows how to do it. Also, I just loved her voice. She just has a 
beautiful. Um, it's easy to listen to, you know, and I think she really gets the intonation of some of the, you know, it's a difficult book to read in a lot of ways. Um, the Spanish audiobook, which I haven't listened to yet, I actually just got an email from the voice actor in Spain who's doing it, who told me she kept having to stop her narration because she was crying while she read it. So I really appreciate the you know heart and soul that goes into these things. I'm so glad to hear that you like it because I thought she was, Saskia was great. And then to that question of why you wrote this in the first person. Yeah, you know, when I started writing the book, I did not start in the first person. I think I was scared too because it just seemed so presumptuous, you know? Like, But as I went on, I felt it was keeping me out of remove to write it in third person. You know, she did this, she did this. And so I decided to go back and rewrite everything I had already written in the first person and I could just immediately tell it worked better. I think it just was easier to connect with her emotions and also just so many, so many of the conflicting feelings and thoughts she had going through this incredible transition from uh, everyday schoolgirl to badass superhero, essentially. So uh, I'm glad you liked it. It was definitely a leap of faith for me, but it just seemed to make sense for the book. How often do you kind of torture yourself with the idea of would Hani approve? Um, I try not to torture myself too much, but I definitely um, think about it a lot and thought about it a lot. I was really fortunate to be able to make contact with uh, some of the descendants of the real people in the book. So, for example, the daughter of Truce Overstegen um, I became friends with, and also the daughter of Feline, who's one of the Jewish friends. They both have read the book, and I'm very relieved to say that they're both really happy with the book. Uh, they're happy the story is getting out there, and they like the way it's told. And in fact, I asked Truce's daughter, I said, you know, I have to be transparent with you. I think I am going to write this as a novel, a lightly fictionalized novel. And I was afraid she might you know, resist that. And she just laughed and said, oh, well, I think you would have to write it that way. Otherwise, who would want to read it? So, <laughs> That's but, okay. Uh, the Dutch are pretty straightforward and down to earth. I love that about them. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Boulder author Buzzy Jackson has written To Die Beautiful, a historical novel set in Nazi-occupied Holland. Her protagonist, Hani Schaft, was a real-life resistance fighter. We spoke at the tattered cover for the book's release. Special thanks to audio engineer Justin Peacock. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.